legalities, taxes, and politics that allow these businesses to do these sorts of things with no consequences and to to make decisions as if their employees are actually robots already instead of people with needs. Welcome to Run Like Hell Toward Happy, the podcast for overwhelmed creatives to stop hustling and finally create balance between work, life, play, and rest to make progress toward their dreams. I'm Caitlin Liz Fisher, motivational writer and coach who helps people listen to that little voice inside that knows what you really want to be doing. Let's get started. Today, we are having a conversation with my very good friend, Ash, who is a writer and business owner and the person who I go to when I have deep quandaries about business or finance or uh, ADHD or anything. (laughs) And I invited her onto the show today to talk about how to have an ethical business because we've spent this season already talking about the fact that capitalism sucks and is trying to destroy us and the fact that it's okay to want to make money, that that doesn't make you a dirty, rotten capitalist. And we've talked about starting your own business. So now we're going to talk about how to run a business ethically. And Ash is here. Say hi. Hi. Hi, it's Ash. So I'm very excited that you're here and that this just sort of happened randomly because as two neurodivergent ADHD people tend to do, we were just having a random conversation and I was like, you know what, this should just, this should be a podcast. Yeah, it seems to be like that a lot between blogs and podcasts. Yes, I do steal with your permission, many ideas for blogs. So tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, just whatever you want to share about yourself. Okay, I'm Ash. Um, I wear a lot of hats. I'm a mom. Um, I've been a business owner since I was 17. And I'm about to turn 30. So nearly 13 years. I really upped my game when it comes to business when I was becoming a single mom. I already had one child and I was pregnant with my second. And just the idea of doing it fully on my own was terrifying. I didn't really have the ability to financially pay for and handle all of our expenses. And the only way that I could see doing it was to create a business and increase my income to handle those additional expenses. And I ended up creating a software that was acquired, and I've been in cryptocurrency since 2013, educating in the space since 2015, and am currently just a work-at-home mom doing crypto education and writing. Awesome. Hooray. Congrats. Like, you, you needed to handle it, and you handled it, and that's awesome. That's what we do. That's what we do. Sometimes we just gotta. So uh, how this conversation came about was I was I was actually going to wrap this topic of ethical business into the MLM episode I did because I think MLMs are not ethical business models, uh, especially with all of the tasty gaslighting and manipulation of typically stay-at-home moms to get them to essentially like join a sales position, but call it a business. And that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So I was going to go all in on like MLMs and, and ethics and stuff. And then I started talking to you and picking your brain about some ideas that I was going to add. And it went off on a totally different tangent as we do. Yay ADHD. (laughs) Yay ADHD. So we, uh, we're here now. Just for starters, in your terms, in your experience, what does it mean to have an ethical business? Like, let's start kind of high level. Okay. So an ethical business to me looks like a business that you are comfortable with. A lot of people will characterize ethics as objective, as 
ethics look the same to me and the same to you and the same to everyone on the street, but that's really not the case. It's similar to morals and tied very closely in with morals, which is all subjective. It goes back to our values from a religious background, from how we were raised, cultural backgrounds, all sorts of stuff. Um, And a lot of different businesses look different ways in terms of how they impact people. So if you look at a business owner and they're looking at how they're going to run their business, you're looking at how they're impacting their nuclear family, their extended circle of family and friends, and then wider circles on out, you know, their customer base, the world as a whole, what impact are they having on the environment? What impact are they having on animals? Are they ethically sourcing ingredients or is there slave labor involved? A lot of times when people are looking at businesses and they're they're looking to say, oh, this business is ethical, they look at one small piece. If you're going to, for example, makeup is something that we talked about. If you're going to say, oh, this one is cruelty free, it's not tested on animals, but then it has ingredients that are sourced from location that uses child labor, is that really ethical just because it doesn't impact animals, but it still impacts kids? I, I would say in my values, that's not ethical, but we can't judge everyone by my values or by your values. And then we also have to look at what kind of hiring is done within a business. If a business is solely hiring based on this is my affinity group, whether that's, you know, I'm white. So I really, I prefer white people when I hire, like that's not ethical. That's not right. That's racist as heck. I'm going to try not to curse, even though I curse like a sailor normally, my bad. (laughs) I curse on the podcast. So you're free to curse. Okay. Um, So, you know, it's one of those things that if you're hiring from an affinity group, are you hiring from an affinity group that's underrepresented? Are you hiring from an affinity group because of the impact that hiring from that imp- that affinity group can have on raising somebody up? Or are you hiring from an affinity group with a goal of exclusion? You know, if your goal is exclusion, eh, that's not that's not so morally right. But if your goal is inclusion and increasing representation in an underrepresented demographic then that could be morally right. You know, it just depends on what you're looking at and how you're looking at it. And unfortunately, when we talk about ethics, there's no clear cut black and white definition of what is ethical. And when it comes down to it, there's going to be a million definitions. Everybody that you ask is going to have a different definition of what is ethical. And, you know, there's a lot of corporations like here locally um, that are involved with certain causes, but then are using workers at a wage that is not livable. Mm -hmm. A big one is uh, the mouse. (laughs) You know, uh, the mouse, you've probably seen various articles and coverage of the fact that many Disney employees at, at the service level are homeless. And you're talking about a corporation that takes in billions of dollars a year, has locations all over the world, is a multinational, multi-billion dollar corporation with homeless employees. And is that ethical? Not a mm-hmm. chance. But they give their leftover food to homeless shelters, you know, the same ones their employees are staying at. So it's one of those things that a single decision doesn't define somebody as ethical or doesn't define a corporation as ethical, particularly when looked at siloed. Oh yeah, they're great. They give their leftovers to the homeless shelters. They are active for foster care causes. They host a number of marathons and uh, events that fundraise for nonprofits. They are involved with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. They're involved with this, they're involved with that. But then they've got employees that are putting their time and labor and soul into working for this company every day with a smile on their face mm-hmm. that don't have a home to go to when they get off work. Yeah, I would agree. Is that ethical? I would, uh, I would say no. My my boyfriend and I do this thing we call waking up mad, which is where we check our phones in the morning and just find something new on Twitter that we're pissed about. And today, Brennan saw a post about the fact that Walmart was in Germany for a while 
I think like nine years and they ended up like folding the entire German arm of the business because the labor laws in Germany did not allow the exploitation of Walmart. <laughs> they were like, no, like you have to pay people more. You have to, you can't keep people at part time to deny them healthcare benefits. Like they just, all these like ethical things about the labor laws that were there and Walmart rather than meet those standards was just like, well, I guess, guess this one was a bust and they just left Germany. So we were, we were angry about that this morning. Cause like, how hard is it? It can't be that hard. You make billions, like pay your workers maybe. Absolutely. And that comes back to one of those things where you have to look at, is it ethical to use social welfare as a subsidy for big business? Oh, yeah. If you're paying your workers low enough that they're reliant on social welfare programs like in the United States, food stamps or uh, cash mm-hmm. assistance or subsidized child care, then you're essentially using taxpayer dollars to to subsidize your your labor cost and that's that seems pretty unethical particularly when you're looking at a tax bracket that pays very 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 minimal tax you know corporations often get away with little to no taxes paid and i'm not saying that that's necessarily their fault or that they shouldn't use those loopholes i'm saying that perhaps those loopholes should be closed or that if you have employees that are relying on social safety net programs while working, then perhaps you should be charged for those social safety net programs that they're having to avail themselves of since you don't want to pay them a living wage. Yeah, that seems like it would be a natural consequence of paying essentially starvation wages. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you see where um, local local areas, cities will enact a, a wage that is livable for their area, Seattle, Chicago, different places will, will create a minimum wage that is higher than the national minimum wage or their state minimum wage. And you'll see these companies start to reduce labor in those areas and go to automated, um, options and is it is it ethical to go i don't really want to pay you a livable wage i was willing to pay you pennies but i'm not going to pay you a livable wage i'd prefer to pay for a robot you know i'd prefer to pay for self-checkout i'd prefer to pay for a robot that rolls down the aisle and scans the shelves for empty areas to restock like I get that automation is the future, but when we discuss automation and we discuss ethics of business, we also have to look at the flip side of business, which is the the legalities, taxes, and politics that allow these businesses to do these sorts of things with no consequences and to to make decisions as if their employees are actually robots already instead of people with needs, you know, healthcare needs, financial needs, Mm -hmm. families to take care of and bodies that need food to eat. We can't pretend that these, these businesses are acting ethically when they're impacting people. I agree totally. And I worked at a greenhouse and we had a lot of automation in the greenhouse. We actually had, we were featured in several articles and like greenhouse magazines we use the automation to make work easier, like to bring the work to people rather than to replace people. I did like that about them. I left for a lot of ethical reasons, but automation was not one of them. And so just the idea that automation is good when it exists to make work easier so that people have better balance. Like, they have like tables that raise or like trays in the greenhouse full of plants that roll on tracks so that people don't have to carry heavy trays full of plants everywhere. And it, I mean, yes, it makes the work go faster, but it also reduces like repetitive strain injuries and things like that. So a big fan of automation, but not when it's being like threatened or used to say like, well, we'll just replace you with a robot. That's fucked up. I think one of the big things that people misunderstand, particularly when it comes to automation, when it comes to social safety net programs, when it comes to the intent behind the laws that are 
oh, we have these social safety net programs, you know, we're trying to take care of people. I think a lot of people um, kind of overlook the roots of those those laws and those programs. Um, there are cycles in the market. There are bear cycles, which are, you know, when businesses aren't making a lot of money, the economy is depressed, we're not seeing growth, et cetera. And then there's bull cycles where we see massive growth and businesses have to bring on employees quickly. Social safety net programs were designed and created solely to keep an, a surplus labor force alive during economic downturn. So the idea was that for the recovery, you need to have labor available. You need to have excess labor available. And if you do not have labor available, you do not grow. So the economic downturn continues. That's the sole reason that these social safety net programs were originally created. And when you look at it from that perspective, it's truly treating labor as a commodity and people as something to, to keep on the shelf, so to speak. Unfortunately, it's a very capitalist thing. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. We know that. But when you when you look at these programs and you're like, okay, these social safety net programs were designed for this, but now they're being used as a subsidy for business in another way. While the business is actively growing, they're continuing to use these programs to maintain the current labor force and not just the excess or surplus labor force that they'll need in the future. So it's, it's one of those things that from an economics perspective, it's very difficult to justify that this is okay. And the only reason that we're able to continue doing this is because of the extreme amount of money poured towards politicians and lobbyists to maintain these programs that allow for corporations to continue barely paying taxes, barely paying their workers and amassing massive wealth while the government amasses massive debt and people are relying on the government to survive even while working full-time jobs. I want to circle back to the phrase, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. And we also talked about the fact that I strive to be very eco-friendly in my purchasing. I want to shop ethically. I want to reduce plastic because pollution is choking the planet. And the fact that like I cannot single-handedly solve the climate crisis and that like I need to kind of chill and stop shaming myself so much. Um, so what are your thoughts on shopping ethically and balance there? Because for me, it is a balance. Like I have to balance my eating disorder and my chronic illness. So needing convenient foods, things that maybe won't spoil. So like frozen things, packaged things, because I can't always know that I'll have the energy to cook a meal from scratch. And also it takes a lot of energy to cook a meal from scratch. And some days I, I can't do it. You know, sometimes we do take out. So it's, it's a real balancing act for me. So I, I do what I can, but is it, is any of it ethical at all? You know, it comes down to trade-offs. It always comes down to trade-offs. Is it more ethical to support a small business that perhaps has to rely on plastic packaged items because that's all that is available from suppliers that they can have access to? Or is it more ethical to shop from a big company like Fresh Market or Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon, Ooh. because they're able to offer packaging that's biodegradable? you know, the, the treatment of their workers and their warehouses and all of that, as well as their entire supply chain are just absolutely awful from an ethical standpoint. It's all about trade-offs. And, you know, you make the decisions that that let you sleep at night. You know, my foster mom, Mama Dia, she always says, you just make the decisions, baby girl, that let you sleep at night. And when it comes down to it, Either one of those decisions are going to have to let you sleep at night because there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. If your finances allow you to put your money towards a small business that helps a small business hire workers that they treat ethically and creates jobs that are not in an Amazon warehouse for 12 hours on their feet, then perhaps that's what you do. And if you're looking at it from a eco standpoint, if you're looking at it and saying, you know, I buy this a lot, I need the the better price, and this comes in biodegradable packaging or compostable 
packaging, then you do that. And the reality is, is that these choices, you can beat yourself up for every choice you make under capitalism. Any purchasing, you can beat yourself up for. If you buy something secondhand, are you not creating jobs? Are you, <laughs> if you buy something brand new, well, that's not exactly reducing, is it? If you buy something that's not recyclable, what is it, Tetra Pak, that companies love, right? But they're only recyclable at certain locations. And so they're recyclable and they get all the kudos and grants and tax breaks associated with having recyclable packaging, but it's not easily recyclable. Yes. And that's a big difference. Something that's easily recyclable versus something that's not. And then when you're talking about recycling, you have to talk about how much recycling actually ends up in the landfill. It's when, oh, that hurt me so much <laughs> when I found out. Yeah. Like we've been watching documentaries and stuff because I work for an environmental nonprofit. So uh, October is very heavy for me in, in learning all this environmental stuff and feeling like deep eco anxiety because mm -hmm. we think we're recycling and our recycling was just getting sent to China where China would basically purchase it, clean it, maybe recycle it. But basically we're just shipping our trash to other countries and making them deal with it. And like, that's, it's so American. <laughs> it's as we both talk on computers with phones next to us, I have a, wa a smart watch on my wrist. I have a smart camera six feet from me, a smart TV, another 15 feet from me. We cannot address ethical consumption without also talking about e-waste and how e-waste is handled. You know, electronic waste is hugely toxic lithium batteries all sorts of chemicals are used in the creation of different processing boards and you know where all that stuff is shipped in developing nations uh, nations that have been historically exploited and unfortunately these these nations accept it because they need the money to accept it yeah they get paid to put their people and their natural resources at risk from these toxic devices that we use all the time. But as they break down, all these chemicals are released into the water, into the ground, into the soil, and they impact people. They increase cancer rates. They do all sorts of things like increase birth defects. You know, I get overwhelmed just thinking about the impact of it, particularly working, well, used to work in tech and, and using so many of these devices and having to constantly upgrade to stay up to date with technology and with the skills that I need needed to thrive. You know, we, we have so much stuff around us and, you know, I'm in a household of seven. How many TVs do we have? How many tablets? How many cell phones? How many smartwatches? How many video game consoles and old video game consoles and old wireless controllers and headsets and old headsets? And and the thing isn't in having a headset. It's in having a headset and an old set headset. And how do you dispose of that properly? You can't compost a headset. You right. Know? right. We've started taking electronics to Best Buy because they have... They allegedly have an e-waste recycling program. I don't know what happens to it. They might dig a hole out well, behind the store and just throw it in the ground. I have no idea. Because it's easier. It's so much easier to just go, they say they're recycling it. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we all do it. You know, we all have a spot or many spots where we just take somebody's word for it. Where I used to live, we had this this recycling program called All In QC, All In Quad Cities, which is just, you literally throw in all of anything that's recyclable in the same bin. Well, that increases having an All In recycling program. It increases the number of people who recycle, which is great for rural communities because they then get recycling related grants. But the problem with it is, is that it also increases how much of the recycling goes to the landfill. Yep. Because if you throw in non-recyclable waste with the recycling, you can taint the whole batch and it'll just end up in landfill. Mm -hmm. I was accidentally doing that. I thought that we could recycle glass in our program and we cannot. And so I've been putting glass bottles in our recycling for a month before I checked the website and saw that no, we're not supposed to do that. So whoopsie. My best friend who lived next door to me, she was recycling all these water bottles, right? And I'm sitting on her kitchen floor and I'm watching her just toss 
empty water bottles in there, collecting them from the kids' backpacks, grabbing them off the table, and just tossing them all in the recycling. And I'm like, you know you have to remove the labels from those, right? And she looked at me like I had two heads. Mm. And I'm like, no, no, really. Like, you can't recycle that with the label on it. If you do, you taint the whole batch of recycling. Yeah. And I don't... And she's like, no way. I don't think they're educating consumers enough on that and of course we're now off on this like recycling tangent so i'm gonna bring us back but like i don't think people know that i don't think people know it at all and also something like only like two percent of plastics are properly recycled you know programs like the best buy take back program or the best buy electronic e-waste recycling program is an example of what one of my professors would have called easy ethics Mm -hmm. it's easy to feel ethical when you just have to drop it off. Yeah. And I think recycling is another example of that as a whole. It's easy ethics to just be like, yeah, I recycle. Yeah. With no mention of how much work it goes it goes into actually recycling properly. Yeah. And when you're talking about ethical business as a whole, you know, oh, my employees are paid a living wage is just one tiny piece of the big picture or oh yeah, we use biodegradable packaging. It's one tiny piece of the big picture and it doesn't speak to all of the elements of business that you're potentially not being ethical in. Yeah. And also being a consumer who's aware of all of this stuff and who cares and who is thinking about all of it, like when I tried to reduce plastic, it relapsed my eating disorder because I I may have just replaced my eating disorder rules with sustainability rules. So, you know, I used to... With the control fixation, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Because I used to have all these rules about like, okay, well, I eat organic, I eat clean, whatever the hell that means. I eat this or that, I eat totally vegan, or then I ate paleo, and I was like, bacon cheeseburgers, as long as there's no grain, I'm totally fine. Whatever the thing of the day was for me. And so I've sort of replaced that with this stress about sustainability and ethical business and like keeping track of the strikes. And, you know, I don't really buy a lot of Kellogg products anyway. Kellogg is on strike right now. But I started looking up the parent companies of a lot of like my favorite vegan brands. Daya dairy-free cheese is owned by a pharmaceutical company. Why does a pharmaceutical company need that? So that, that got me all stressing, but lest we go down this, this corporate ranting thing for our entire time, I want to talk about like small business, like running an ethical business versus shopping from ethical businesses. Because I think wherever you're shopping, like you said, it's going to have trade-offs. It's going to have balances, but what about when we have a small business? What actually started this conversation was I had heard like business advice to hire virtual assistants in the Philippines because you can get like a full-time VA for what feels like pennies on the dollar, like three, four dollars an hour. And that to me, I immediately assumed was completely unethical because that's like starvation wages. But in the Philippines, that's a good living. And I was I was having this issue sort of parsing that and thinking like, well, is it unethical to pay someone in a in a foreign country versus paying someone in the US? And you, I think, correctly pointed out that that was being kind of nationalist and assuming that it's better to hire here than to support someone in another country, et cetera. So let's let's talk. Philippines virtual assistance for a minute. Okay. So one of the things that we touched on when we were talking about this together was why do you feel that it is, or why did you feel that it's, it's worse to, to support a Filipino worker with a living wage than it is to part-time support a, a worker here in the United States. And, you know, it came down to you felt like you were either A, taking advantage of a virtual assistant in the Philippines mm-hmm. or B, underpaying an assistant in the Philippines. But when you, you remove those borders and increasingly in the past 
30, 40 years, we've removed a lot of borders just with the internet and with cell phones. You know, you, you have to take that into account. But when you when you look at this and you go, okay, if I were hiring in New York City, I would pay this. And if I were hiring in, in rural Iowa, I would pay this. And it's two different numbers. Is that unethical? Because you're making sure that your employee in New York City has a living wage and you're making sure your employee in rural Iowa has a living wage. That's ethical, right? right. They both have a living wage. Is that living wage equal? No. But it's not based on any individual factors other than where they live. You're not paying more because, oh, he has a family. He deserves more. Oh, she's single. No kids. She deserves less. Those kinds of determining factors on what you pay people based on their individual demographics, based on their family situation, A, they're illegal, and B, they're they're wrong. They're morally wrong to do the same amount of work. But if the same amount of work is providing a living wage and the same amount of work is providing a living wage, then what does that matter, right? Yeah, that and was so, really interesting for me because I had just assumed that like outsourcing is bad. Like we keep hearing like, oh, so-and-so, they outsourced all their tech support to the Philippines or to India or to such and such. And then Americans are mad because tech support doesn't speak English and like all this stuff. And so like, I have been receiving this message that like outsourcing is bad. Outsourcing is cutting corners, outsourcing this, outsourcing that. And you were like, the concept of outsourcing is shitty. Yeah. You know, it's a very nationalist concept. I want to touch for a second on the phone system and the the monetary system as examples of what I mean. Okay. So if you have a client that pays you from the United States via PayPal, the fee is 30 cents plus 2.7%, right? If you have somebody pay you from the UK, it's 30 cents plus 3.7% because it crossed a border and you're supposed to be made to believe that this costs more because it crossed the border. But it really didn't cost any more. They're just able to charge for it at this point. Okay. Same with phone calls. It used to cost extra to call to like the next county over. It was called long distance. I'm defining it because you might have some Gen Z listeners. Yes. In my millennial youth, I did have to press the one to dial long distance. Yeah. You would press one to dial long distance or zero if you're calling out of the country. And it's one of those things that we were charged more for. Under this, it costs more to do theory. And at first it did cost more because it was going through more switchboards and all of that stuff. But all of that got automated and those savings weren't passed along to the consumer until the invention of voice over IP. So with VOIP and actual competitors that took away long distance charges as part of their core business model, that's when phone companies decided to compete and stop charging people for long distance, at least within the country. There's still a lot of places that charge for calls overseas because of the unreliability of internet services in certain areas. So it's still lucrative for them to charge because of the unreliability of internet in those areas. It ends up being a, well, we can still get away with it here for now. I did not know this. I'm learning. Well, when you look at money, crossing borders is the same thing. If you exchange a currency, it's expensive. If you're sending a wire overseas, it's expensive. If you send a wire within the United States, it's like eight bucks. If you send a wire overseas, it's like 70 and a percent, right? But you can't tell me that costs any more to send a signal from here to the UK or here to Texas. You know, you just can't. Like, it's a few buttons on a computer and it's updating something in the software system, it is not actually more expensive. You are not actually physically moving money overseas. And yet we continue to allow that to be a thing. While in cryptocurrency, and when we look at cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency does not care if it crosses borders. Just like VOIP phone providers do not care if they cross borders, the only thing that affects them is internet reliability. So if you're talking about making a voice call or a video call on Facebook, they don't care where I am as long as I have stable internet, right? And it's free. So there's no real point in me paying huge fees, huge international rates to my cell phone provider when I can just hop on Facebook Messenger and do it, right? And so when you're looking at the the idea of, is this ethical? Is this okay? When we cross borders, 
generally it costs more. It costs more because we're supposed to be maintained or contained within our country, right? And crossing borders becomes this thing that, oh, you crossed the border, we can charge for that. But as the world has become more globalized and as services and the internet has become more reliable, those things are no longer the case. So when you're talking about employees and you're talking about having employees overseas, that was something that only big businesses could do. And the critique of big businesses moving jobs overseas was a talking point for politicians. Oh, we're going to charge these businesses that are moving jobs overseas. They're taking our jobs. They're stealing from us. Us, 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 us and them. The same thing that we deal with all the time in terms of racism, nationalism, us versus them. And when you're talking about hiring an employee, if you can employ somebody and give them a good wage saying, I owe it to somebody here in the United States versus somebody in the Philippines is nationalist. Why is somebody in the United States more deserving of a job, of a position than somebody in the Philippines? Yeah, especially when you consider that like what I could pay would cover like, I don't know, a week's worth of groceries here and an entire monthly salary there, you know? Absolutely. And that's that's one of those things that that we have to consider as business owners. Is it better for you to provide a living wage to somebody or is it better for you to provide a little bit of spending money to somebody here? It's that us versus them mentality. And it comes down to a very uncomfortable set of topics, which is the the outsourcing word. It was bad because it was big business taking our jobs, our jobs, our jobs. Right. It was an entitlement. It was owed to us. And it was a very big popular thing. As we were growing up, you would hear about it on the news all the time. So-and-so is outsourcing this plant. They're setting down a plant in this place and sending it there. And they're outsourcing and they're going after cheaper labor. They're doing this, they're doing that. And they were, right? And why, why is that inherently bad? What about that is unethical? If they can provide a living wage there, versus one here and why is it that they're required to produce value here versus somebody else in order to be considered ethical and that's something that doesn't have an answer because it's it's based on group mentality it's based on a an entitlement to those jobs an expectation of loyalty unearned loyalty you know if we're not able to support businesses here because small businesses are taxed at one of the highest rates of any businesses overall. And small businesses are now able to leverage the same advantages that big businesses had years ago, 50 years ago, in order to to build their business and in order to maintain their business. I don't understand why that's considered unethical outside of a unearned expectation of loyalty. Yeah. That's, it's still blowing my mind. And it's something that I really have to unpack because I do have that. No, I should be like supporting an American person with, with any, like anything I can afford to pay to like help outsource. And I have, like I've hired friends and I typically will pay like 15, 20 bucks an hour. Um, Like even if they Mm -hmm. say like, oh, like pay me 10, like I believe in a $15 minimum wage. So I pay a $15 minimum wage. And Absolutely. I'll do the same. Yeah. I've just done that like here and there. I'm like, I need like a little bit of work done. Like, can you transcribe some podcasts for me or like whatever? And I just do it like odd jobs here and there, but you're just, you're blowing my mind. You're blowing my mind. So, you know, like it could be possible for me to like hire a full-time assistant to be helping me run my business. But then now I want to talk about how do you ethically hire an employee and make sure that you are paying them fairly while also paying yourself. So like I would expect that based on the help I could receive, say from a hypothetical full-time VA, maybe that skyrockets my business and I start making $10,000 a month. How do I make sure I am fairly rewarding and compensating that employee and that all that profit is not just for me, because that feels capitalist and hoardy and Jeff Bezos to me to be like, oh, $10,000 a month. That's all from my hard work. Because it's not it's it would be from a person doing work for me. 
to help me grow my business. So does that look like bonuses? Does that look like profit sharing? Is it possible to profit share when your product is a service versus an actual product that you can like Absolutely. count? You know, when you're looking at profit sharing from a business, you're not looking at a commission-based product, right? You're looking at the end of the month, the end of the year, the end of the quarter, whatever it is. This was our business expenses, including labor. This was our business revenue. This part is profit. What percent of that should go back to employees? What percent of that should be put aside for future growth? Okay, that makes sense. And so breaking stuff down into we covered our expenses and we had leftover. And yeah, some of that leftover needs to go towards securing against economic downturns or other things. But it's also something that you're going to make your employees feel more appreciated and have better employee retention if you're going to say, okay, we made this much, this percent is going to go to you. I think when people have a a stake in how the business does, there's a lot more commitment to the company, Mm -hmm. commitment to the goals, commitment to the mission. And when they know that the business is doing right by them and doing right by the community, doing right by the environment, there's a lot of people that are going to have better engagement. But, you know, as small business owners, we do the best we can. As people, we do the best we can. And that carries over to being a small business owner. And if you're a small business owner and you've had unethical business practices in the past, congratulations, today's a new day. Let's work on it. You know, let's say, okay, you know, I can't afford to to bring up wages overnight, but I've been paying a $9 minimum wage. I can afford to bring it to 11 this month and maybe 12 next month and inch my way there. You know, as I slowly raise products, increase profit, you know, figure out how I can make this work. Okay, decrease overhead, whatever it is that I can make this work. You know, it's it doesn't have to be overnight. It doesn't have to be instant. And a lot of people think that perfection is the goal. Mm -hmm. Perfection is not the goal. Better than yesterday is the goal. So if yesterday you are paying somebody $10 an hour and you know that's not a livable wage in their location, then today pay them a livable wage or as close to it as you can as you progress towards a livable wage. If you have questions about suppliers or the supply chain for your products, begin researching it, begin looking for other suppliers, okay? It does not have to be today. It does not have to be an overnight instant perfection. My business is truly ethical and be transparent about it. Tell your customers, you may have noticed a small increase in the price of our sandwiches. This is because we have committed to raising our company minimum wage to a livable wage for all of our employees. The 30 cent difference on each sandwich directly goes to make sure that our employees are paid a livable wage even without tips. Yeah, I dig that. And that would make me buy more sandwiches there. Sandwiches for us. Yes. You know, too bad we aren't closer. We could do a sandwich date. Yeah, I'd um, love to have a sandwich date. But, you know, when you talk about I, the place I went to yesterday for 16 years, they've been in business and the entire time they've been paying a livable wage. Okay. And right now they're working on going towards more sustainable packaging and they're transparent about it on their social media. They're like, we've always been using this. We're trying out some new stuff. Let us know how you like it. And the reality is, is that some of it's hit and some of it's a mess. Paper straws are the devil. Yeah. Not convince me otherwise. The texture. I just can't do it. I can't do it. (laughs) They're bad. I have some metal straws, but cleaning them is hard and I don't always remember them. And I feel like if I just kept a metal straw in my purse, it would be all dusty and gross. So I just tend to like refuse the straw and like, I just drink from a cup at restaurants or whatever. I have a sensory. Yeah. And then like the ice touches your teeth and it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So those are all things that, that we look at, you know, when we're talking about ethics for a small business and we're talking about small business being ethical we're not talking about a small business being perfect. We're about, we're talking about a small business trying. Yeah. We're talking about a small business going, this is how we've done it. And this is how we're going to try to do better. Yeah. I love that. And I think that a small business saying we're going to do better, even if they're only impacting five people directly employed by them, 
they're also shifting their customers' mindsets by being transparent about it. We're still able to have a profitable business that pays for our lifestyle, while our employees are also living a good lifestyle. They have health care. They're able to pay for child care. They're able to have time off. All of these things that, that go into to being a good employer, go into being an ethical business owner. And when I was actively having more than one employee, I have one currently, but when I actively had multiple employees, we would also make sure that time off didn't mean coming back to the work that you would have done had you yeah. been there. You know, and paid time off is supposed to be time off, not rush when you get back or prepare before yeah, you leave. I always, um, I, I hated my vacations from my job at GCG because like I would be panicking at work leading up to it to like get ahead because I knew that mm-hmm. I would come back to a pile of shit to deal with. Well, and that's the thing is that expected productivity should include time off. And the amount of labor you purchase, the amount of labor supply that you have on hand should include having people that can cover each other's time off. And you would expect that in a a retail environment, that's done, right? But a lot of times it's overlooked when it's in an administrative environment or an office environment of various types that that work is just waiting because it's not as time sensitive as a customer in your face going, need a sandwich. And I think that's one of the things that's often overlooked is, is the ethics of that. That's, that's really crappy. And then another thing that we look at when we're talking about ethics and that is really important to both of us is accessibility. Yes. Disability, accessibility. Personally, I have PTSD and ADHD. I went into a job that was in the mental health field. Okay. And made clear, I have PTSD and ADHD. I need a quiet place to work with my back to something. I cannot have people walking behind me. They put me in a hallway. Mm. They put me in like in a little alcove off a hallway, my front facing a wall, two walls on the side, so I didn't even have peripheral vision. And people passing behind me like every two and a half minutes. So I'm turned around the entire time. And every time my boss sees me, she's like, are you getting any work done? No. No, I'm not. So then we had like this, this flexible working policy. And she was like, oh, yeah, you can work from home. Just let me know. And so I'd work from home and she called me. Where are you? What are you doing? You have a program on my computer. You can see I'm working. Just log in. You're literally interrupting a person with ADHD while they're hyper-focused on getting a lot done. Yeah. Like, I'm creating that presentation you want. Can you please not distract me? And I think that when you're talking about ethical business practices, if you overlook accommodations for people who need accommodations, whether that's flexible working schedules, whether that's working from an environment where they're comfortable and able to focus, whether that's making temporary accommodations in the case of illness, pregnancy, or, you know, uh, temporary disability, temporary situations such as death or illness of a family member, all of those need to be considered when you're talking about ethics, because it's not just how much you pay your employees, it's how much you actually value your employees, and their value doesn't decrease because of a disability or illness. Yeah, solid, solid tips there. Oh, God. The working from home. Are you familiar with the idea that you can pay disabled, developmentally disabled employees less? Yes. Than the federal minimum wage? Yep, and that's a bunch of bullshit. Well, it's based on productivity. And that's saying that your value is only as as much as you are productive. (sighs) And that's why you see grocery store baggers with developmental disabilities pretty frequently because they're able to pay them less. So you'll see that people have been paid less for years, $4 an hour, $3 an hour, up to, I think, 60% less than the federal minimum wage, which is about what tipped employees make without the ability to get tips. And they'll work there. You'll see on their name tags. I've been with grocery store for 11 years. And when you're talking about disability and you're talking about 
ableism and you're talking about the ethics of all this, if you're hiring an employee that's on disability, you can get them kicked off disability if you pay them a living wage. Yes. So even if they're temporarily able to work and their disability is not that bad right now, that temporary ability becomes what the government perceives as their permanent ability. The way that like the government specifically, but society in general treats disabled people is an absolute travesty. And it's like, if you're on disability, you can't get married. Like, cause you'll lose your benefits. Cause suddenly your spouse's income counts and you can't own more than $2,000. Like if you have $2,000 and a penny, you will lose your benefits. And that's not okay. And then healthcare, like the fact that we tie healthcare, not even good healthcare, it'll still cripple you in medical debt. We tie healthcare to full-time employment. Mm-hmm. No. It's all super toxic and super complicated and largely unethical. And trying to navigate that as a business owner and treat your employees individually in an ethical way is very difficult. You know, um, the one employee that I do have is disabled. And he's literally told me, look, I know that you need extra help right now, but I can't give it to you because you needed extra help last month and the month before. And if I hit a third month going over my cap, I'm off disability. And like this man is in a wheelchair, (laughs) like he is permanently disabled for the rest of his life. He has no lower legs. And somehow him working 26 hours a week makes him magically fully able to do everything and not in need of subsidized health care and the other, I don't even want to call it perks, but benefits that he receives as being disabled, you know, and he can't accrue property. And one of the loopholes on that, that we actually had to ask an attorney about is that he can prepay bills. So instead of saving towards a a three-month emergency fund, he's reliant on the the trustworthiness of his landlord and his utility providers that his three-month savings, you know, which we encourage everybody to have in case of emergency, has to be prepaid instead of set aside. So that money isn't flexible. He has to prepay it towards his utility bills or prepay it towards his rent to where he has a cushion of three months prepaid on his rent and three months prepaid on his electric. That kind of strategic what if he blows a tire and needs that money for a blown tire you know what i mean so yes he can have up to two thousand dollars but if his car is worth two thousand dollars that counts assets count i'm sorry assets count i didn't know assets count what so if you have a car that's worth four thousand dollars you just don't get disability benefits (sighs) there's a few loopholes you can say like oh my car is used for this and they'll give you like an extra like wiggle room allowance but like if you hit that ten thousand dollar valuation on your vehicle because let's say you inherited one or you were given a a van from charity for having a wheelchair ramp right it can't be worth a certain point or it can't be in your name which then puts you at the whim of somebody else being trustworthy i didn't even know that so like this whole season is called like capitalism sucks like that's my working title capitalism sucks. and we could talk for hours we could talk for hours because like i hate this but i want to be able to grow my business and hire people and support them because i i think i have a good business i think i'm doing good work and like what the fuck what our country is just whack But it's not even just our country. Capitalism is worldwide. And the problem is, is that capitalism sells this idea that your neighbor shouldn't be taken care of because it's a direct threat to you being the next Bezos or Bill Gates. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's this huge us versus them. And I talk about that in uh, the gaslighting of the millennial generation. I'm going to talk way more about it in the sequel follow-up book where I'm not scared about making people angry and I'm going to be like 
full pissed off rage, Caitlin ranting. I love it. I love how much you have come into ownership of your full true self and true thoughts on topics that I'm just like, Caitlin, we've talked about that and you're a lot more adamant on how bad that is than you want to put forth into the world. And I'm so happy as I've seen this podcast grow and everything that you have really owned those radical ideas. I was really scared. I was so scared that I was going to put people off, put off the people I don't agree with or like or need or want around me. You don't need their approval. I'm like, oh no, I didn't want to get bullied on the internet. Like, guess what? I still got people leaving shitty reviews because like I left out Gen X. Like I'm a millennial with boomer parents and that's the perspective I'm writing from. So like, if you want that book, maybe write that book. For me, it's even weirder because my foster mom, she turned 80 last month. Oh my God. And I'm turning 30. <laughs> Dang, that's a gap. Yeah. So a lot of times we sit down and I, I say something and she's like, yeah, we had that idea in the 60s. <laughs> you know, Martin Luther King wrote on UBI. And I'm like, oh, okay. Dang. Yeah, because she was like there. Yeah. Holy shit. Like, my she parents marched. were born in 57 and 59. She so, like, they Selma. were kids. And, and then I'm like. That's so cool. Well, and then, you know, um, we were in the city where Trayvon Martin was killed. That's where, where I grew up, where I live. And so that's where Black Lives Matter started. You know, yeah. and so I'm sitting with somebody who's marched for 60 years. <laughs> And people are saying things and, and, and to her, there's a weariness in her voice when she says, I've been doing this 60 years, six decades yeah. I've walked because this is not the world I wanted to hand down to my grandchildren. And it's fighting the same fight. So it is what it is, but ethics and doing right by people, we all just do the best we can. And we all just have to do the best we can. And chasing perfection is not how you're going to be able to best impact people. You're right. <laughs> I say it's a recovering perfectionist. And that's what I teach is I teach that you don't have to be perfect. And I teach that holding yourself to impossible standards is a recipe for burnout. And like I teach all this. And then there's still some little part of me that's like, but not for me. I can do it. I can be perfect. And it's like, nah, you guys sit down too. Okay, but that chill. voice, that voice is not you. That voice is Molly. Mm, yeah. Hey, mom. That voice is saying, you have to be perfect. And yeah. and guess what? You don't. I don't. We don't. You know, we worry so much about small things that nobody else cares about because it's our way of controlling things and our way of making ourselves feel guilty or making ourselves feel that, I don't want to say structure, but rigid intolerance from people who have hurt us and we don't need to do that to ourselves no chasing perfection no chasing perfection we don't hustle in this family etc <laughs> i need that sticker like on my laptop i have i made stickers i'll send you one dm me your address okay. i had stickers made that say we don't hustle in this family <laughs> so you're gonna get mail i will be robbed by little people i will send you how many do you need I just need one. I'll just hide it from them and check the mail before they're off. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, I'm going to wrap this up because we have we have ADHD and we've covered our topic and we've talked about ethics. And thank you so much for bringing your expertise and your experience and for just sharing this hour with me. I really appreciate you. It was nice to finally like have a face-to-face -face conversation with you. I love it. And I'm so glad you invited me. I was so nervous. I was like, we're going to run into scheduling conflicts. Nope. It's all good. But thank you so of much. Course. I appreciate you deeply. I love you. I will talk to you, I'm sure, in 20 minutes when I have a question. Okay. Okay. Bye. I'm talking to my 16-year-old that I acquired a few months ago. And I'm not just kidnapping children. He's placed with me. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today. If you loved this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. 
Then join us in the Run Like Hell Toward Happy community on Facebook, where you can enter to win prizes like free books, coaching sessions, and more. Huge thanks to Leave Nelson B. for our musical interludes and to Jennifer Hearn Photography for the photo used in my cover art. Check the show notes for links and resources mentioned in today's episode. And I'm not even going to bother telling you my social media handles because all I want you to do is join the Run Like Hell Toward Happy community on Facebook and enter that awesome giveaway. Boom, you can find me there. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.